outside of the Bible, there's a book that's probably had more influence on me than any other book recently in recent years, uh, and it's a book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Uh, you probably know this book because I talk about it way too much. I did a whole teaching series called that last January. Uh, and it really, the premise of the book is that we just live our life too doggone fast, don't we? We just zoom, 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 thing, 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 schedule, schedule, schedule. We never stop. We never rest. And one of God's biggest gifts for us is the ability to rest in him. Like one of the Ten Commandments is Sabbath. And you know what the word Sabbath means? It means stop. That's what it means. It means cease. It means stop. Just stop. And that's one thing God has for us and wants for us, but we just don't because our culture moves so quickly. And so I've talked about that quite a bit. Um, John Mark Comer is the author of that book, but he gets this phrase from one of his mentors, uh, a well-known Christian writer of the last, uh, decade, last few decades, a guy named Dallas Willard. And he said this. He says, hurry, hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life today. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. It hurts us. It kills us. And so I want to return to that idea of eliminating hurry in this current series that we're in right now. That's been a pivotal thing, not just for me and my family, but a way that we've tried to schedule and do church as Venture Church. Uh, we don't want to overpack people's schedules. We want to be able, for example, the men's uh, thing that's on Wednesday and talking to John about his small group. We were just like, hey, let's just, we'll all do that together. Not like John needs to have like another small group to make up for the one that they're missing. Like, no, no, we don't have to do so much and be so busy to enjoy the blessings of what God has in this world. And so it's been pivotal. And so what I want to do is sprinkle some of those concepts into the other things that we're teaching through. And we've been in this series, we started last week, called Sent to the City. The idea is how do we build God's kingdom here in Wilmington? That's what Venture Church exists to do. We have a king, Jesus, and he has a kingdom in this world primarily made up of his church. How do we, the church, impact the city that we were sent to? How do we make a difference? And um, one way is that we got to slow down. It's easy just to be too busy to love well. Uh, I, I should go talk to my elderly neighbor, you know, and they never have family come to visit, and I see her struggling maybe to get groceries in the house or whatever. I should go do that, but ah, just, I'm so busy right now. I've got a lot to do. You know what I mean? Like, I should get involved with mentoring some kids in the community or, or, or volunteering with the youth group or doing some of these other things to help young people, but ah, I just got so much going on right now. I should be involved in the things that the church family's doing right now, but I just, I just can't. I just got a lot. I'm building a career right now. I'm building a social life right now. I got a lot going on. Now, here's the thing. I say all that, and it feels like I'm, you know, slapping us on the hand, like, stop doing stuff. The, the hard thing is that a lot of things you do are good things. I'm not standing here saying that I think most of us are wasting our time doing terrible, sinful things all the time. <laughs> For the most part, even people who aren't serving God are doing pretty good things. The struggle comes in deciding and discerning what is good from what is better. You follow that? And so that's kind of the idea. And one step towards that is understanding what it means for us to ruthlessly eliminate hurry in how we love people. Corey Tim Boone, she famously said this, and she, she was uh, the author of the book, The Hiding Place. Uh, she was in a concentration camp. She was a Jewish person living in, in that area in that time. And she wrote this book after her experience here. Great book. Recommend it. But she says, uh, she says, if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. <laughs> Now think about how that hits with our life and how we live. When you look at the life of Jesus, never once do you see him in a hurry. 
Just read the stories of his life. He is bombarded and just uh, constantly people are clamoring for his attention. Thousands of people. Jesus, feed me. Jesus, heal me. Jesus, come talk to my daughter. Put your hands on me and pray for me. Come and do a speaking event. Jesus, come and be the guest of honor at my dinner. Like Jesus is, he's bombarded by requests and he actually does live a full schedule, a very busy life. But never do you see him so busy that he doesn't take the time to stoop down to speak to a child. To take the time to step off the beaten path and come to this area where there's a a person living on the margins that needs a little extra love, uh, pausing to explain to someone who isn't quite understanding his teaching. We also see him regularly setting aside large chunks of time just to go off and pray. And so, like, that's a model. This is a, Jesus would be a, I would think, a high-level entrepreneur if he lived in today's society. He's going. It's not that he's lazy. It's not that he's, like, not doing anything living on top of a mountain and just waiting for people to walk to him to feed him grapes. No, he goes hard, but he also is never in a rush because he makes sure there's plenty of margin. It begins with our personal spiritual life. And we talked about that some in the conversation about ruthlessly eliminating hurry. I encourage you to go back to our podcast last January, I think it was, and and listen through those if you haven't heard them because it teaches you to slow down and tells you the, the biblical principles behind that. But also, building from that space of being fully rested in God You also have your eyes up, and you're looking for the things that God would want you to invest your time in, discerning what is better from what is just maybe good, definitely from what is bad. Okay, and so what I want to do is take a look at a scripture, a story from the Bible where we find Jesus and some of his closest friends walking into some of this conversation. So if you've got your Bible today, uh, go ahead and flip over to the book of Luke. It's in the New Testament of the Bible. We love to look to the Bible every week for God's most important truths and I'm going to be in the book of Luke, which is one of the four biographies of Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are called the Gospels. If you need a Bible, feel free to look it up on your phone. You're not offending me. There's also Bibles on a gray shelf by the door back here that you can grab. If you need a Bible of your own to have, take one of those. Put your name in the front. It's your Bible. Or if you just want to borrow it any Sunday during church, just borrow it. Put it back. Uh, It'll be on the screen behind me as well. But we're going to be in Luke chapter 10. This is actually a very short story. I like teaching through longer sections of Scripture and really diving in and digging in. But this is like a pretty straightforward short story. It's going to teach you something big, though. And we're going to meet two of Jesus' closest friends. Let me just start the story, and then we'll do some uh, introductions. Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 38. It says, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. Mary, Martha. Let's meet these two ladies. This is Martha's house. That's the first thing you need to understand. It actually plays into her role in this story. Um, Martha and her family were close friends of Jesus. This area, Bethany, is just kind of a suburb of Jerusalem. And you see Jesus go there several times. He actually, it's one of the last places he visits before he's crucified. And wh- while he's visiting there, he always stays with Martha and their family. That seems to be that that's his pattern. And uh, it's neat to have a picture of some of the lives of the people that Jesus was closest to. In this short little story, though, uh, we start off by seeing some reactions that Mary and Martha are having to Jesus. And so look back at it and you'll see. But first of all, we see what Mary's doing. It's Martha's house. What Mary's doing is she is, verse 39, she sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. That's what Mary's doing. So she sits down and she's just watching and listening what Jesus has to say. And this says a lot about how Mary viewed Jesus. 
Jesus was a well-known uh, rabbi, a Jewish teacher, and she had the opportunity to sit and listen to him, and so that's really cool. Uh, a couple, was it last Monday, a bunch of us went over to the roastery, there's a guy named Marty Solomon. Marty uh, is a podcaster, and he has a podcast called Bema, B-E-M-A, that's the Hebrew word for like the teaching platform in the synagogue, and uh, he's in many ways become a teacher to a lot of us because we listen to his podcast. He recently wrote a book, uh, and He's did a little book tour, and so he, sh- he showed up in Wilmington, and uh, we were able to go. And it was really cool because we were all sitting there, and I-, I was kind of feeling like this. Like, this is a guy that a lot of us really look up to, and we're just sitting there. I think there were about, like, what, 15 or 20 venture people were there, and we were just like, teach us, Marty. Like, tell us something. And then I walked away like, am I in a cult? I don't think I'm in a cult. No, he was talking about you. That's the way you feel when you're in the presence of someone that you really want to hear what they have to say. And so this is Mary's posture. Jesus is here. What else am I going to do? I'm going to listen to everything he has to say. Okay, that's Mary. Martha, it says in verse 40, was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. Do y'all remember how crazy y'all's mama got when y'all were going to have company? You remember? Man, me and my brother, like, we were, we were, work, we were you know, she, we were like slave labor anywhere, anyway. I know she watches our sermons. I mean, mom, you worked this hard. It was hard. And these were the 80s, and so the pay wasn't good, and the 90s. And so, yeah, anyway, but we vacuumed, and we did dishes, and we, like, did all the stuff. But the thing is, even though we kept the house immaculately clean, and, and I know my mom was very uh, proud of that. She wanted to have a good-looking house. If grandma was coming to visit, or we had other guests, like, me and my brother are cleaning things. We're Cinderella up in there. Like, we're try- like things I didn't know we had. We're moving furniture. They're like, Mom, they're not going to look back here. They might. They might know. I'm joking. Like, the whole idea, though, is when you have company coming over, you want to put your best foot forward. You want to be a good host. And that's something I learned from my mom. And that's something that probably a lot of you take in. You know, you guys are hosting small groups here soon. You're going to have company over, and so you're going to take some time to maybe bake some cookies and tidy up a little bit, shove some stuff under the bed and in the closet. And so this is Martha's reaction to Jesus, an adequate reaction. Mary's swooning over him as a teacher. Martha's like, this is my house. I am distracted by the preparations that need to be made. I don't know what the preparations were. Remember Jesus rolling deep with an entourage of at least 12 men. They probably ate heartily. So she's probably making appetizers and drinks and making sure their, you know, bed linens are clean or whatever, whatever they needed to do to get this thing under control. Now, was there anything wrong with what Martha was doing? No, no. That's, hosting is actually a very big biblical principle, to be a good host and be hospitable. God loves a good, hospitable person. Was there anything wrong with what Mary was doing? No. No, you want to sit at the feet of the living God and listen to him teach? Okay, that's the good thing for you to do. But Martha's frustrated with Mary. <sighs> Mary. Mary, will you get up? Come help me. Remember, this is the first century. There are female and male roles. I need to point this out because I think it's relevant to the story. It's very rare that a woman would get to sit at the feet of a rabbi not making the drinks. You know, we've come a long way as a society, but this is, so she's looking at her sister like, what are you doing? Don't you know your place? So she takes it to Jesus. She's frustrated. The second half of verse 40 says, she came to him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen what is better. And it will not be taken from her. I'm sure that Jesus was very appreciative of the hors d'oeuvres and the drinks and the clean house. I'm I'm sure he wasn't mad about that. 
In fact, he probably honors Martha for that. Like, thank you. I really appreciate that. And so notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, Martha, what are you thinking? Did you sit down? Stop, stop walking around. You're making me nervous. Get in here and listen to me talk. He doesn't say that at all. He just said, listen, Mary had a choice to make. Actually, I think she chose what's better. You were worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and this will not be taken away from her. And that's where our lesson comes from today. Um, we could look at this story from a lot of different angles. But I want to take a look at this for, through the lens of sent to the city. Because there are a lot of good things that we could be distracted by in preparation for. You live in Wilmington, one of the most beautiful places on the planet Earth. It is a great place to live. There's plenty to distract us from doing what is better. Plenty of good things. So how do we learn to discern how to spend our time. For us to love well, we're going to have to make time and make it a priority. Martha chose what is good. Mary chose what is better. So let's make the connection. Uh, there's, a, there's an author named David Runyon. He wrote a book called The Art of Neighboring, Building Genuine Relationships Right Outside Your Door. We actually used that book to kind of guide us through some teaching a couple of years ago. And the whole idea is, like, neighboring is, comes from this idea of Jesus saying, like, you know, one of the greatest commandments is to love your neighbor, you know, love others as yourself. So if that's what we're supposed to be doing, loving God and loving others, how do we do that better? It's the art of neighboring. It's the, the, the intentionality of getting good at it. Stepping outside of our comfort zone and engaging people and like actually stepping out and doing that. And, and it's interesting, in his book he says this. He says the number one obstacle to neighboring well is time. So think about that. How many of your neighbors have you never spoken to? I'm talking about in vicinity to your house, okay? Yes, this is brought on this whole series is to get us in the mentality of moving to a new house, you know, at 76 Darlington Avenue, and there will be neighbors there, but I'm just getting real personal. Like your actual neighbors that you live next to, how many of them you don't, you've never even spoken to, you don't know their name? How many of them have you ever had over to your house for dinner or gone over to eat with them? It's 2023 in America. We do not do that. Just like, hmm, it's kind of just crossing lines. Like that's why we have restaurants. We can eat there because this is my space. And I get it, we're mostly introverted as a culture, so that's fine too. Uh, but I'm just asking the question, I'm just putting it out there. I'm not even stepping on your toes, because I think it's okay sometimes. It's fine, you don't have to have all your neighbors over for dinner. Not everyone is, is called to that. But the question is, is there an obstacle to you being a good neighbor? And is it possible that it's your time? I'm talking about you're driving down the road, you see someone who's clearly in distress, their car's broken down, and you have a cell phone that you could like totally pull over and help them call a friend. <laughs> But you're like, I'm tight on time right now, I gotta go, right? And this happens every day. Not everyone, isn't that why we pay you know, taxes so that other people can come? Like, this is how we justify this, but the number one obstacle to neighboring well is our time. And I think what Jesus wants us to do is look at all the options we have, not be distracted by something that's not best, and be like Mary and choose what's better. And how can we use our time for this? And so in his book, Runyon talks about what he thinks are three lies that we allow ourselves to believe to justify our poor neighboring, especially as it comes to our time. So I want to run over these lies. Uh, they stepped on my toes all over the place this week as I looked through them, and I hope that maybe it helps us all kind of just think about that. And ask yourself, are these some of the lies that maybe you believe and that maybe they're in the way of us just doing what Jesus is calling us to do as people? Here's the first lie. The first lie is this. Things will settle down someday. That may be the number one. 
I mean, I know it's a busy season. I got meetings and meetings and meetings and things and things and things and stuff and stuff and stuff, but it's going to settle down one day. When summer gets here, actually, if I can get the next Thursday, if I can just get past this one project, the truth is that's a lie. Because they are going to keep on making up ways for you to spend your time, okay? Every club that you pay money to for your kids to go do sports and activities, they're going to keep on scheduling activities for you. And every hobby that you have, they're going to keep, and the concert venues are going to keep having concerts, and the places, the places are still going to have sales and stores, and like it's going to be there. So it's actually a lie that things will settle down one day. Things are going to keep going, especially in a capitalist American economy. That's how we stay alive, <laughs> We keep going. So the only way to make that stop is for you to say no. To stand in the gap of your own schedule and say, not this, not this. Why? Because I need to create margin in my life to love well. And you can replace it with things to love well. Let me schedule some time with a friend that I need to spend time with or go and mentoring a kid or, or whatever it is. And I, I make the point, you're smart. You get it. That's a lie that we believe. Um, Things won't always settle down. Martha chose what was better. How about you? How will you choose what to do with your time? Second lie that we tend to believe. More will be enough. This might be a bigger problem, actually. I will never forget an art teacher I had. I think she was in sixth grade. And she said this, and it it felt like I was sitting at the feet of Aristotle when she said this. Like, that's so, wow. That's so smart. And she said, a true artist knows when to stop painting. (laughs) I was like, what does it mean? Let me write it down. But you know, if you've ever tried to draw a thing and you're just like, that's it. Wait, a little bit more eyebrows. No, no more eyebrows. No, this is not the thing I wanted it to be. And so that's the, really the eye of a good artist is to say, doop, 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 doop. don't touch it. That's it. That's it. And the same thing can be applied in, in the rest of our life. Uh, you quickly uh, put too much in your life thinking that one more thing will be enough. More will be enough. Richard Foster is a book, an author of a book called Celebration of Discipline. It's been pivotal in my understanding of what it means to seek God with my life, like spiritual formation, spiritual disciplines. And uh, he says this, he says, in contemporary society, in contemporary society, in the world we live in, our adversary majors in three things, noise, hurry, and crowds. If he can keep us engaged in muchness and manyness, he will rest satisfied like what Corey Tim Boone said the devil can't make you sin he'll make you busy now I could talk a lot about like the stuff we have and materialism and all that but we're talking about time today because we do the same thing with our time we pack more in and more in and more in and more in I, I'm a do-gooder like I like to be involved in things and I'm always I'm involved in so many organizations and things and the truth is like sometimes that can be too much like you're just doing too much stuff right now even though it's all good you're not choosing what is better How much time have you spent in God's word? How much time have you spent praying? How many time have you spent in the evenings with your family? And so this is something that my family has fought against uh, for a long time. And we try our best to to live out that that mantra that more is not enough. In fact, the mentality of Sabbath rest says that God has already given me enough. That's why I can rest. I can rest in the knowledge saying I can take a day off work or work a few less hours or stop doing this thing because it's going to be okay. I believe that God can do better with me rested and him being the provider than with me trying to be the provider and wearing myself out. More is not enough. More is not, I don't know how I'm supposed to say that sentence. It's not always better to have more. Uh, That's the second lie we tend to believe. Um, 
There's a third lie that Runyon points out. Everybody lives like this. That's the, that's the mentality that's like, well, it's okay because everybody does it, right? Everybody does it. And, and if, if your mom or dad didn't tell you, well, if everybody jumps off of a bridge, uh, they should have told you that because that's a really good lesson. We should all learn that lesson. I remember when my daughter was like three, uh, she was in gymnastics. And every now and then I would take her to gymnastics. And uh, I, I have a memory of taking her by myself, though I think sometimes, I think mostly Lindsay and I went together. But anyway, uh, when you go watch a three-year-old do gymnastics, there's not a lot to do. Uh, it's not really for you. Um, it's not really for them. I don't know why we have that. They mostly do what they do in the living room. You just pay money for it. But, uh, but so we're there. It was cool, right? And we're in there and we're doing gymnastics. And there's like this little watching area. It's like this cage they put all the parents in. And you can watch through this glass, which is also weird. And I'm standing in there. And I'm sitting in there with all these, um, these moms. And these are like, I don't want to like over, you know, stereotype these, this group of people. But like, I'm guessing, I'm just guessing there was a lot of stress, okay, in, involved. And so, and I remember listening to them. And they were just go on and on every time during gymnastics about how busy they all were. It was almost like a competition. It was like, well, you know, after this, Billy's got photography class. Oh, yeah, well, my little Jimmy rides horses. Oh, he rides horses? Well, we breed horses. And it's like, on and on it goes. I'm like, oh, and I'm sitting there. I'm exhausted by their schedule because how often it was that they had to hurry up and leave here and go to the next thing and the next thing on the same day. And so I remember just having very young children and my wife and I being like, no, <laughs> we're not doing that because we don't have to. We don't have to. Um, and so we finished gymnastics, and that was good, but it's like, you can do, like, one thing, okay, right now. That's, that's all, and then sometimes you can't do one thing because someone else is doing one thing, and that's okay, too. We're going to support them in their one thing because we can't do everything, but we allow ourselves to try to do everything because we believe the lie that everyone lives like this, so therefore, I have to, and can I, can I, give, you some, can I give you some peace? I, I want to tell you something really important. If you call yourself a Christian, I want you to know this. Part of being a Christian is this. You don't live like the rest of the world lives. That's like the main thing, actually. If you go back to Judaism in ancient times in the Old Testament, the main thing about the Jews is that they were really weird. Like they wore weird clothes and they had strange hairdos and they didn't cut certain parts of their beards and their sideburns and did all this crazy stuff because God wanted people to know when a Jewish person walked into the room, they were like, What's going on with him? He's like, I'm set apart for the Lord. <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> you are set apart for the Lord. But we've gotten into this mentality as modern Christians that, that is we can look just as much like everyone else as possible and also carve out an hour or two to go to church on Sunday, we're doing it. That's a lie. We've got to live differently. And I could talk a lot about all the ways that we can live differently. But today we're talking about making time to love well. And when your kids or your friends are saying, why aren't you doing this, why aren't you doing that? It's like, well, you know what? Because actually, we just wanted to leave some space. We just wanted to leave some space. This is a cool thing about loving well. You don't always schedule it. I read a book, a great book by an author, uh, by an old preacher, and he was telling stories of his memoirs. And he said, I found that the best parts of life happen in the margin. You will not remember the extra hours you put in at work. You won't remember them. They won't make a difference in the long run, and you're not going to make more money, really. You will not remember all the events that you scheduled your kids to go to. Most likely, your best memory will be a Saturday morning where you had nothing to do. And you just hung out in the house. Most likely, some of your fondest memories as a child or any time in your life was just some wayward weekend where you just kind of were just having a, a good time. The best things happen in the margin. The same thing is true with how we love well. Because then I have the headspace to step into someone's life and help them. Because maybe I am headed to a meeting, but I need to help this person. 
So I can call the person I'm meeting with and say, listen, um, can we reschedule? I actually have some more available time later that we could reschedule because I have margin. And this margin allows us to love well. Mary, Martha chose what was good. Mary chose what was better. How about you? How will you choose to spend your time? Now, how does this Mary Martha story at all connect to the sent to the city mentality? I actually wrestled with using this story because I never want to say anything that the Bible's not trying to say. And I don't think this story about Mary and Martha is like a story about how we should like go out and love the city. Like, I don't, if you can find that connection, you're better than me. I almost didn't do it. But then I realized something as I was trying to understand scripture and Jesus' teaching. Jesus actually says something in, this is Matthew chapter 25, starting at verse 35. And he's given kind of a, a parable here, but this is what he says. He says, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. You following that? Like this person was in need and he took care of it. And this is Jesus talking. Then the righteous, righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? I don't remember that. And when did we uh, see you thirsty and give you something to drink? And when we see you a stranger and invite you in? I don't remember that. When did you need clothes and I gave you clothes? Why do you need clothes? You're God in the flesh. Like you, you probably have some, right? I don't remember that. And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of one of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. You see, Mary had the opportunity to sit at the feet of Jesus and listen to him teach. And though we may not have that physical opportunity because Jesus has risen from the grave and he's gone up to prepare a place for us in heaven and he's given us other jobs to do right now, we may not have that physical opportunity. Every single time we love someone in Jesus' name because we took the time to do it, every single time, it's like we're entering into his presence. And we do get to sit at his feet. We get to praise him with our hands and our feet and our actions and our time. One of the biggest obstacles to loving people well is time. But creating space to love our neighbors may be the most significant worship we can have to our God. And that's like a deep philosophical truth that maybe takes some time to wrestle with. It's going to take some readjustment of our mentality as a people because as good neighbors, we get to be the hands and feet of Jesus. In fact, not only is it true that when we love him, love them, we're loving him, that's good. But it's also true that when they see our actions, they give glory to the Father in heaven. Jesus said that too. People will see our good deeds and they will give glory to the Father. So it helps them get even more worship. It's like exponential worship. I worship him by serving and then he gets praised just because they saw it. So every week I try to give us a challenge, like a take-home thing that we can do in our real lives. And so um, I don't know how to word this one. So I got some words on the screen, and I hope you can translate it into your own life. This is what I got for you. Make time to love well. That's the challenge. And here's a little bit more clarification. I think that this week we could all identify time each day where you're intentionally loving someone in Jesus' name. And so what does that look like? It might look like for you, you wake up in the morning, you see your calendar ahead of you, and you're like, I know that when I get to work, there's going to be this person that always is needing of some kind of love. So maybe I plan in advance. Like in the morning, I, you know, maybe today when you go home, it's like, okay, I, Wednesday. It's going to be Wednesday. I feel like that's probably going to happen. You can plan in advance to do that. But also, in creating more mental space with your time, like literally just telling yourself, I need to create space. Just doing that one act will create these 
bubbles of time in your life where God will fill them with opportunities. And so it might be for some of us that at the end of the day, we look back and we're like, how did I intentionally take time to love someone in Jesus' name today? Oh, that's right. That's right. There was that thing that I had, I did, you know. And they don't have to be these monumental, you're not running into burning houses every day to save people. I recommend that if you have the training and the equipment, okay. But like, but most likely it's going to be just talking to your neighbor. It's going to be just giving someone a phone call that needed the phone call. And it's going to be making yourself available when someone asks. Um, a couple weeks ago, I had an opportunity to make a decision. I got a call from a friend. Long story short, uh, one thing that I do for fun um, is I work on cars. I like mechanical work. I like working on cars. I'm not a mechanic. Uh, I probably can't answer whatever question you have, but I'll sure look at your car with you and stare at it for a long time and bang on it with something, and we'll probably replace something by the end of the day. And so that's how it goes. And so someone called me because there was someone in great need. This, this, this person actually lives in their car and um, was having a really rough time. They'd been broken down for about three days, and someone had actually already kind of swindled them out of uh, mechanics work. A friend had paid for them to come replace a part, and uh, I found out later that part was never replaced. It was a bad part. It was still the bad part in there. So they ran off with their money, and um, so my friend called me. He was like, hey, is there anything you can do to help? And I literally was like, I mean, I, some of you know me and my schedule. I do a lot, and, I, and I'm not complaining or boasting. I'm saying I, I stay involved in a lot, but another thing I try to do is to like also leave lots of margin. And so like I draw lines. I'm like, no, I can't. Um, but I looked at this situation. I looked at the rest of my week. It was early in the week, like Tuesday, Monday. I was like, let me go find out. And what I was told was that they probably just need a jump. That was not accurate. Uh, four hours later, <laughs> we had replaced a starter on their car, and she was parked downtown in, in a fairly seedy spot. And um, something amazing happened. I, I turned it off, my brain off. I said, I'm just going to do, do this. I actually, I was actually frustrated when I first went. I was like, wow, I should have just said no. Why did I answer the phone? Like all these dumb things you say. But this lady just stood there for about three of those four hours because I had to make a couple trips to O'Reilly's. Um, just talking, sharing her life, telling me how she got here. She's a super bright person been through a lot, is a veteran, chose to live in her car. This is, you know, she has means to do that. It's just that her car broke down. She's older, I think, in her 60s and, and, and isn't able enough to get down and look at the stuff. She said, years ago, I could have fixed this myself. And just listening to her. By the time I left, you know what I did? I thanked her. She was like, thank you so much. I was like, no, thank you. Like, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed this. And for you to remind me that when the love of God comes out, it comes back. I was in the presence of Jesus. Whatever you do for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you do for me. And by extension, I was serving our Lord. Uh, I hesitated to tell that story because it's not a thing you shouldn't get up and talk about what you did. But what, what I'm saying is I had a bad attitude. <laughs> I had a bad attitude. I did not want to go do it. And when I found out that it needed more than just a jump, I was frustrated that I was the one who had to stand there. Because then what? Do I just, am I a jerk and I just leave? And then when I found out that someone else had already messed her up and taken her money, I was angry at that person. But by the end of that situation, I was just thankful. That's what happens when we create margin to love well. Martha chose what was good. Mary chose what was better. How will you use your time to live out the calling that you have in the city that we live in?
Can I pray for us this morning?